Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. Welcome to In the Wings. In this episode, you'll hear the voices of writer Ronan Brady, director Daniel Reardon, and actors Catherine Walsh, Norma Shahan, and Catherine Walker, talking about working on The Silent Passenger, Ronan Brady's play chronicling the hasty departure of Sigmund Freud, his wife Martha, and their daughter Anna from Vienna in 1938. Uh, my name is Ronan Brady and the name of the play is The Silent Passenger. My name is Catherine Walsh. My name is Norma Shahan. My name is Daniel Reardon. Hello, my name is Catherine Walker. It's about the escape of the Freud family from Vienna. Uh, they were very, very late to leave. As Jews, they were under threat, uh, but they were able to get away. And my story is the story of how they did that, of how of what happened on that rail journey uh, from Vienna to the border of France. And it, it takes place on the train from Vienna to to Paris via Salzburg and Munich. I play the part of Anna Freud, so I am the daughter of Sigmund Freud, and um, she is uh, she's quite bolshy, and she's I think she's got some of his determination. I play Paula, um, and she is the uh, teacher and um, maid I think to the Freud family. I'm Princess Marie Bonaparte. There's much talk in the play about Princess Marie Bonaparte. We only hear her very briefly, but it's very telling. And she, of course, was an extraordinary woman, uh, became a psychoanalyst herself uh, and wrote wrote books. Uh, She she was quite an amazing... And while we only hear her for a little bit, the, the, the speech is so is so vivid and, and so important. You know, she stops the Gestapo in their tracks, literally in their tracks on the staircase, and dismisses them, her haughtiness, her royalty. Paula is the um, the teacher to Anna, Freud's, well, ex-teacher to Anna's, Freud's daughter, who's older now. So I feel like she's kind of attached to the family all her life, really. Um, and uh, so she um, is the housekeeper and the teacher um, and takes this journey with them. She is the great grandniece of Napoleon and she, under Freud, she actually worked with Freud um, and believed that Freud cured her frigidity and went into psychoanalysis herself. So a fascinating character, absolutely fascinating. In fact, reading this play, when I when I started to have a look into her, I was just that I it, it it began a whole went I went down a whole new avenue. I thought this woman is extraordinary. I didn't know of her before this. So very fascinating. Well I was fascinated to find that it was a, a true story because I Googled it and I thought, oh my God, this really happened. So that was kind of uh, shocking actually, but uh, but but beautiful. So it, it kind of adds another layer to it, another richness to it, you know, because I did think initially it was a leap of imagination, which I thought was great. But um, yeah, I thought it was fabulous that it's actually based on the truth. It's kind of extraordinary. So what I like about the play as well is that it's from the point of view of the women in Sigmund Freud's life that uh, mostly you hear just about him. Whereas here in this play, the, uh, the women are, are to the fore. There's a lot of... Um, and it, it, I find it fascinating how 
strong his wife was, his, his daughter was, and they were all, of course, pivotal characters within his own life, but also in the influence that Freud had on not only his patients, but on the world. Yes, I, I, I was a little bit nervous when I saw it because I thought this script might be too historical and but it's just it's all in yes there's a lot of facts and fascinating details but it's um it's an emotional journey so it's a, a snippet in time it's it's very 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 clear very moving and particularly um the Martha Freud she it's it's kind of her journey really this play is um that's the part I'd be like to like to play. She's much stronger than the daughter. But sure, we can always re-record it in a few years' time. Um, but uh, no, the the part of of Martha Freud, she is the she's the engine, and yes, yeah, Sigmund is obviously the genius. But sure, behind every crazy man is a is a, a wonderful woman. So um, yeah, it looks like Martha Freud is the is the boss. I think it is a political piece rather than uh, a treatise on psychology and I wouldn't really be qualified to write a treatise on psychology. I am deeply concerned by the question of fascism, how it developed and uh, what people need to do to fight it because I actually think we're going through a period now in our own lives of uh, of great crisis not unlike the 1930s and I think it would uh, there, are, there are lots of things we can learn from uh, studying the 1930s. Read more about them than actually dealing with their own seminal texts. You, you grow up with Sigmund Freud whether you like it or not. <laughs> Carl Jung, I found a more fascinating character from the uh, the spiritual point of view, specifically the the observance of the of religion in his life, in Carl Jung's life. But the contrast I always uh, found interesting was the, with religion, Freud being Jewish, uh, Carl Jung being a, a Christian, a very spiritual and observant Christian at that. And uh, I, I, I like that contrast in life visions. I have brushed up against them, I suppose, as we all have. You know, I haven't in, in any great depth. I would have more understanding of Jung than Freud and he would be more relevant to me now than Freud would be. But um, no, I haven't studied them extensively, no. When I got the script first for this, I have just come off Shirley Valentine and Shirley Valentine has a little speech about, I'm not really into sex. Sure, sex is like, um, sex is like supermarkets, a lot of pushing and shoving, you come out with very little in the end. And it was all Sigmund Freud's fault. Apparently Freud said there was two ways for a woman to have an orgasm. And the main one was caused by having the muscles inside stimulated. And the second, like inferior orgasm was caused by the little clitoris. Now that's what Freud said and everyone believed Freud because you would, wouldn't you? Like Sigmund Freud. Imagine you were at a bus stop with Sigmund Freud and you said, is this bus going to uh, Grana Bra? And he says, yeah, you'd get on like, wouldn't you? Because it's Sigmund Freud, but I tell you, you'd be lucky if you ever got to Grana Bra because Sigmund was wrong. There's only one bus goes to Grana Bra and that's the clitoris bus. I do have an interest in psychology, but I'm more interested in the politics of the whole event. And as you will see, the the way in which uh, Jung is brought in is that we don't really think very much about Jung's um, psychological theories. It's more about his relationship with uh, Freud and with Hitler and uh, his his cowardice in regard to the events of, of, of the late 1930s, you know. And on the train, they have these exchanges, these conversations. There's a doctor on board who's looking after Freud. 
because at this stage he's had 16 operations on his cancerous jaw. Because he was always uh, with a cigar. He's in a lot of pain. So the doctor is there to administer whatever medication that he, he might want or need. And his daughter Anna is with them and Paula Fichtel, who was the maid of the, of the household and really the confidant of the household as well. So I knew that Sigmund Freud, he obviously had some idea, like he, he thought about things, he was deep and very smart, but as Martha said, did he back it up with much? He made people think, he was obviously very smart, um, but he got around with the old, uh, the bits and bobs. That is one of the most fascinating things. Every job you do is, is a study. So we get to study real people all the time, real, uh, something like this is extraordinary um, because all of this happened, right? And it's the most amazing story. So rarely do you get to go in depth into a small chapter of somebody's life. And that's very interesting. And it's that detail that is is fascinating. So yeah, no, it's a, it's a great, great part of the job, whether you're learning about the life of somebody or whether you're learning a skill. You can often be learning a skill too, a new skill. <laughs> so it's great. I knew since I was about four or five that I wanted to be an actor. There's an essay out there um, when I think it was in senior infants going, when I grow up, I'm going to be an actor and I'm going to have to leave me mammy and daddy for a while and go off to America and be, do loads of jobs. But sure, they'll be grand. That kind of thing. And so I had a plan and I did classes in Cork. The old Billy Barry's down there is called the Montforts and Cork School of Music, um, wonderful woman, Maureen Prendergast. And then I went on. My mother said, no, you'll get a degree. So I got my commerce in UCD, spent all my time in the drama sock, got the degree for the mammy and went off to RADA then for three years. Funnily enough, I was taught by Mr. Jerk Canning, who is a sports commentator, and he was the Irish and drama teacher at South Presentation Convent School in Cork. And he did these great British farces with us and we were an all-girls school, so I got to play a load of men's roles. And uh, and then he introduced me to the National Youth Theatre. He got me an audition for that and I was in Dublin and that's it. So thanks to him. I went into science journalism. I went into the the coverage of of, of politics and so on. Uh, I also taught aspects of ethics, journalism ethics. Now, I mean, you know, some people will start laughing, you know, when when the subject of journalism ethics comes up. But all my life I've been an active trade unionist and I was a very strong supporter of the National Union of Journalists and uh, very concerned about its code of conduct and about making sure that students would abide by it and that would have been one of my main concerns. When I was four, I was sent to uh, speech and drama. I I grew up in Coolock on the north side of Dublin and uh, there was a great drama teacher there, Imelda Noon, and I went to her classes and I stayed with her for 10 years and she was a wonderful teacher and it just became my great love and it was what I was always going to do then there was kind of no question so she was I suppose she was the the genesis of it all for me. I really started in as one does at school then in university and the director I had at Fordham the, the, the drama company at Fordham University in New York was a man called Vaughn Deering a uh, legendary actor and he brought me downtown. He lived in the Lambs Club, the Actors Club, just off Broadway. And he brought me downtown to the Provincetown Playhouse Winter Headquarters, which was in McDougal Street in the village. And uh, he said, here you go. You just sit down there and you watch and you listen. 
and and do what they tell you to do, which I did with uh, stars in my eyes. And um, I got a few walk-on parts. I did. I came When I came out of school, I went to the Gaiety School of Acting and I did their full-time course. And uh, then I went to London. But I always really feel that because there's such a, there is a part of what we do, which is the craft and the hundred odd hours that you have to do of stage time or camera time. And, and for me, I was very lucky at 22, 23, I joined the Royal Shakespeare Company and I spent three years with them. And, and I always believe that in a way was my, really my training. What well, was my apprenticeship was there because I got the stage time and, and, and the study time and the rehearsal time and all the wonderful things that a, an institution like that offers you. I came to Dublin to do the National Youth Theatre and then I discovered people like Cathy Belton and David Parnell and Paul Mead were all going to Trinity. So I applied for Trinity. Um, Barry McGovern is in this play and I actually was the ASM at the gate for a year before I went to Trinity. So I ASM'd for his original Godot at the gate buying carrots um, and stuff like that so that they'd have their carrots for waiting for Godot. Um, and then I went to Trinity for two years and yeah, and then began my journey. This is my first play. I uh, have never written anything for drama before. I've been, I mean, I've been a member of the audience (laughs) all my life, but uh, I had never thought to actually uh, write something until I retired and until COVID happened and uh, I suddenly was with nothing to do and uh, nowhere to go. And... The PJ O'Connor Awards were on and I thought, well, I'd try something, you know, and I wrote it for the PJ O'Connor Awards and I actually finished it just literally, I think, uh, two weeks before the the final date, you know. So uh, it was, um, I suppose RTE made me do it. Radha was brilliant. They did a little bit of radio work in there, but not enough. Radha was like... I suppose coming out of UCD and after spending so much time drinking pints and whatever, it was quite therapeutic then to go to Rada for three years. And it was like day and night, 30 of us. There was a couple of Irish in the year. We ended up doing Dancing at Lunas in the final year with Brian Friel. Uh, when I was in the Royal Shakespeare Company, let me see, who was I there with? I was there with uh, Samuel West. Um, I was in Richard II with him. He played the, uh, an extraordinary Richard and uh, David Tennant also. Great talents to be working alongside. Joe Donnelly from the North, Aoife McMahon, Elaine Simmons, Alan Turkington. Yeah, they're all hovering about. Joe Donnelly does quite a lot up the North. Um, she's getting married to Marty Maguire, a very strong actor, um, soon. Um, Alan Turkington's in the UK. Aoife McMahon is in the UK. Elaine Simmons has kind of moved into becoming a therapist for a while, but she'll come back to us. We're all addicted. There's no avoiding it. Now, I, I was at Fordham, and when I graduated there, I came over to Trinity College. Academically, was the was the reason that brought me there initially, and there in Trinity, started working with, uh, or playing with our, the Trinity College players, TCD players. There were some wonderful people there, Derek Chapman, Malcolm Douglas, there was Kate Thompson, there was Jean Ann Crowley did some work with us as well, and, and players, Louise Keane. And it was great fun, of course. And then I came out here to uh, to... RTE, there was a, an ad for, for actors, young actors, <laughs> and I got a two-year contract, very lucky to get a two-year contract. Peg Monaghan was on the audition mic opposite me, and she brought me through it, and uh, I, I thank her for the, 
for the two-year contract initially and then, you know, with with life one gets one job, then you get another job and you get another job. And I'm blessed that uh, some 50 years later I'm still at it. It's been interesting. And uh, my sister kills me for saying, oh, I'm 30 years acting. She's uh, She thinks I reveal my age too much by saying that. But it's hard to believe that it is 30 years, you know, um, and everything is a new beginning. And as I was getting the bus in to do this project, you think, oh, it's a start again, a new beginning, new people. So um, and I was talking to Barry the other day and he, he still feels like a young fella. So I thought, oh, God, so do I. <laughs> yeah, we've all had our ups and downs. You know, you just have to stay with it. And as I say, many a time you have to have five milking cows to survive in this business. It can be any five milking cows. For me, I do podcasts. I do voiceovers. I do theatre, even though I gave it up for 12 years when the babies were, you know, there. Younger, now they're capable and whatever. Filming, obviously, is handy because you can earn a week's wage in a day. So you have to dabble in it all to survive as an artist. And that is a bit sad. But if you're just going to, I know I only do theatre. I'm sorry, but the, the theatre can't pay you to earn enough to survive the year. You have to have bits and bobs going in radio, theatre, TV, film, teaching, podcasting, writing, producing. Like there's a plethora of things you can do. And I think it has to be that way. The difference between um, uh, journalism and playwriting is that you can make things up in playwriting and I don't have a great deal of imagination. I can't spin great yarns. I, I, I stick mostly to what I know to be the truth. And that's what I tried to put into the Freud play. I, I'm, I'm struck with great admiration of, of, of people who can imagine, you know, uh, stories. But I, mostly I stick to what I have gleaned. And I suppose that's a form of reporting. But it's the people like I got to work with the with the great uh, Cicely Berry, who was a great voiceover coach, famous voiceover coach, and like we had her on a daily basis in in the rehearsal room. I mean that was a that was a gift, and actually she was very influential because she you would imagine you know being the kind of queen of voice and and the authority on voice. You would imagine that it would be technical but it wasn't everything everything with her was about connecting connecting really truthfully to the feeling and the meaning and she worked from that place all the time so it it was uh, you know that that they were the they were the gifts and the hidden wages and the 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 great parts of the apprenticeship so I I was very happy to live in theatre town (laughs) yes I was always interested in theatre and acting from a very young age I, I, I came over here to, to RTE in 1974. Two-year contract uh, with the Radio Aaron Players at the time. There were 32 members of the company then. And I was in awe of all, nearly all the <laughs> members of the company. One just sat and watched and listened. And uh, it was invaluable experience. And I still draw from it now. And I'm I'm... After RTE, I concentrated mostly on on acting freelance and and writing, writing plays and poetry. My preference is probably theatre, you know, and even when we were taping downstairs, as soon as you begin, the mic goes live and we begin to talk to each other and connect with each other. That's where you feel, oh, my God, this is fantastic or this is great or this is. So that's the closest thing to the live reaction with the other actors, really. So and uh, that's that lives so much on stage. That's really where my heart is. Yeah. 
I pretended I didn't like theatre when the kids were young, pretended I hated it. Um, but now I've got back into it now that they're teenagers and I did The Cripple of Inish Man two years ago in the Gaiety and I loved it. And then I went on to do A Day in May, Angela's Ashes and Shirley Valentine, of course. Like anyone who thinks that's a farce and a joke, it, I'd be crying every night on stage. I love it. Um, so theatre for me is where my grow is now. I'm gone a bit cynical towards filming now because this, it's all gone into taping these bloody auditions that you do talking to your phone talking to the wall like Shirley at home and nobody ever sees them hundreds like back in the day you auditioned and you went into a room you met the director they checked were you normal they checked had you a bit of a vibe and could you take direction now you're sending a tape out into the ether good luck and it's about do you have half a million followers that can promote the film after or do you not and I certainly do not oh I I, that's like choosing a child right um I love them all and I and feel incredibly lucky to work across all of the mediums. What I find is that when I do one, I crave the other. By the time I've come to the end, I crave the other. And I always describe um, theatre as the marathon and filming as the sprints. And I suppose more than anything, it's very, very important to return to theatre because if you're not doing the distance, you can't do the marathon. So that is the one, you know, it's easier to be rusty and go on camera. But with 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 theatre, you, you do need to go into that training. But uh, so all of them, all of them. I always found radio to be the most imaginative of, of mediums and the most artistic, really. The pictures are better, as the young child says. I like the pictures better on radio. And one can do most anything and everything you can think of <laughs> on radio. It is so expansive and informative, enlightening, enjoyable. It's it's everything. I, 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 I've always... Radio is very precious. <laughs> when writing, I mean, there's a very clear structure to, uh, to, to the newspaper report. I mean, you must actually uh, summarise. You must uh, get the key details in as early as possible. And then uh, you follow a procedure whereby the less important details are put in later on. It's, it's an established pattern reporting. The, there is feature writing as well, which doesn't conform to that rigid structure. But you must, with uh, reporting, you must get the key details in first because the reader or the uh, viewer doesn't have all the time in the world. (laughs) They really just want to get uh, the key details. The last two years have been interesting too, you know, because we've been heavily affected by what's happened. So Zoom readings and plays outdoors and stuff like that has been fantastic, you know, and this radio place. Um, So anything that keeps us all going. So it's another chapter. I think this is a very interesting chapter. These this next year and this uh, these last two years. What is next? I'm auditioning away. Shirley Valentine tour is coming up in 2022. So I'll be going to every theatre literally around Ireland. And if it's not, it's we're going to every county with it. Um, beautiful play. We've got great response in the Abbey. It's sold out, and my heart is in it. Well, I've just completed a film. I was film, very lucky to be filming in Ackle Island. I was down in Ackle for two months and it's a film called uh, My Sailor, My Love. It's with a wonderful uh, Finnish director called Klaus Harrow. And um, 
we were filming on beautiful Ackle, which of course is a character in itself. And 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 that was again, she's quite a difficult person, and I'm recovering a little bit from her. She holds a lot of grief and a lot of pain, but a wonderful, wonderful process. Uh, Klaus, our director, uh, I suppose, um, in a very Finnish way, is 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 incredibly precise with his filmmaking and his shots. But I find a great freedom in that. I, I, I love working in that kind of precision and form. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a really wonderful experience. Well, I worked for Unfoblucked Republican News and that marked me out, I'm afraid. And then I went um, uh, freelance and uh, I did one or two radio essays for Worlds Apart. Uh, but uh, I, I mostly uh, was trying to get freelance work. On a few occasions, actually, I helped uh, Belgian-French radio when they were covering Northern Ireland, and uh, I did quite a bit of that, but I wasn't making very much money. Then uh, I, I submitted a, an application to go with the United Nations for in Rwanda, and I was actually selected to go as a human rights field officer. And I was there for a few months and uh, I returned. But at that point, I really had no career at all in journalism because what little career I had had <laughs> more or less gone. But I was lucky enough to get a job with um, Griffith College uh, teaching journalism. My next thing is the Irish Arts Centre in New York is going to host myself and my sister, Eileen Walsh, who's also an actress, in an Enda Walsh play called The Same. We did it two years ago, originally in uh, the prison in Cork and then Galway at an airport, but now we're going to go to an actual theatre. They've, I think, spent a couple of million redeveloping their space in New York, so um, and they've invited Enda over, so that's fab. So that's 2022, all going well, touch wood. I do think, yes, probably I do get put into a kind of intense category, <laughs> um, which is which is not particularly true. There's something in about, you mentioned Miss Julie, Hedda Gabler, characters like that. It's hard not to be attracted to that complexity and that difficulty. They're difficult people. And I'm often interested in playing a difficult person and, and working that out. It can be sometimes quite hard because you're not necessarily liked but the psychology and finding what it is that makes them tick is is really interesting to me. I've been working with uh, Dead Centre Theatre Company, Pan Pan Theatre Company who always have something going and uh, in October just last October tw- uh, 2021 we were in Sarajevo with the Dead Centre Company Chekhov's first play. There are things coming up in, in 2022, I'm happy to say, and with uh, between Pan Pan and Dead Centre, and it's, uh, you see the world. <laughs> and uh, wrote it, but Pat Kiernan in Cork, it's a Cork Durker production, so um, and it will be there, I'm sure, um, to see us on, on the first night, but he, um, he can take a back seat on this one. I know he's over in St. Anne's Warehouse at the moment. They just opened in, uh, in Brooklyn in medicine, so I'm sure he's glad to uh, take a little rest and just be the writer. And he'll always be an honorary Corkman, really, for Disco Fix, whether he likes it or not. <laughs> Any comedy? I would welcome some comedy. I would love some comedy, but uh, at the moment, none coming my way. <laughs> I, I was only thinking of that yesterday that I saw Norma Sheehan, who's also in uh, The Silent Passenger, and she she was absolutely beautiful in Bedbound, and Walsh is Bedbound. Yeah, I can remember that performance uh, and in such a small space, but it was, again, the language of it is something that you, you know, 
it just carried you or something. Yeah, that's a very memorable piece. We must let Norma know. <laughs> we must remind her. In my first job, Bedbound after school, it was an Indra Walsh play and it got loads of awards because Indra Walsh writes for actors. So it was brilliant. And then I got into radio through that. And I love radio because, you know, you can turn up. I have a bit of a face for radio. It's a bit lopsided. Someone asked me once, did I have a stroke once? But I didn't. Um, So it's handy. You can come in here in a tracksuit and play a goddess. So I do love radio and I love radio plays and voiceovers and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's kind of my path. Well, all of the actors that I work with at the moment, of course, everyone's younger than I am. Uh, and I, I've, I'm fascinated to see young actors coming from uh, the Lear or the Gaiety School and how they, uh, they bring so much uh, talent and enthusiasm and skills. What I would lament, if I were in their position, I would lament the fact that there's not that many older actors and experienced actors that they can be exposed to, that they can learn from. And in the, as, as much as you can learn anything in the drama school, you're not with older actors. What I found uh, as a young actor, I learned more just by watching and, and listening to the older actors than I think anyone could learn in any drama school. I think journalism is almost in war conditions at the moment. I mean, take, for example, the fight that people have to make uh, to fund this station. And this station is, in my opinion, it's one of the the most important uh, feeding systems for journalism in the country. I don't think we I don't think we would have much of a democracy without RTE and RTE tries to tell the truth but of course, you know, telling the truth means shaming the politicians and you know, the politicians are the people who will provide the money for RTE and I think it's a tremendous difficulty for RTE. It's the same with the BBC. It's the same with broadcasting in in other countries. The funding system has changed. People's viewing habits have changed and listening habits have changed. And uh, I think we really have to emphasise the importance of having a vigorous journalistic community. The Oligarchs in in journalism today are incredibly dangerous and uh, I I don't, for example, believe it would have been possible for Britain to have chosen uh, Brexit without the fact that one oligarch or a couple of oligarchs strongly supported it and uh, selected journalists who would push that message to people. I I think they, they, they messed up the head of the British people did the oligarchs uh, during that period. And uh, it's not the first time. The business has changed in that regard. The acting companies that are being formed now are all being formed by, it seems, graduates of of the drama schools. And they're all of the same age. They're all of the same skill set, perhaps. And uh, there's no stable of older actors and... uh, Maybe I'm saying that just because I'm, I'm an older actor, and I, I love, I love to work with, with young, young, lovely young actors and different kinds of skills. Yeah. 
oh look you know me sure god almighty I'd do anything like if, if Dancing with the Stars called I'd be there but they apparently I don't have enough followers but I'd love something like that or I'd also love to keep writing I'm trying to DLR Dunleary Rat Down have given me a few quid to, to get a script across the line so I'd love that something of my own what I certainly won't do ever again and if I talk to youngsters do not sit at home waiting for the phone to ring because then you're giving the power to someone else. Keep the power. Stop being a puppet. In this country, you are just an interpreter if you're an actor. You don't even get artist exemption. So you have to take control. You're not seen as an artist if you're just an actor because you are seen as an interpreter in this country. So you have to take a little bit of control. In lockdown, I found myself travelling to Cork. I was with my family, my mother and sister down in Cork. And, you know, I have family all over the world in Sydney and London. And really without... Zoom and all that. I don't know where we'd have been, whether it was for work or it was connecting with family, you know. And then I, it's been interesting, you know, I, I watched a lot of Zoom plays online. So, yeah, I, I think my last two years have been Zoom focused. <laughs> yeah, I do feel I've, I've quite a few friends who are, who are not well mentally and they're coming back out of it. They've remembered how to dress themselves again and they're getting jobs again. But the pandemic has uh, will have a lot to answer for. I know we've had deaths. I know these people have been affected with long COVID. But I think the mental problem hasn't even kicked in yet. I have friends in mental institutions on meds go, going do lally from this. Um, has it changed the industry? I think I had to adapt. I had to become like, I don't want to insult the engineer here, but I had to train myself up on how to be an engineer, to do voiceovers and podcasts from home. Because I turned my car into a studio. Um, the neighbours thought I'd been kicked out of home because I'd go out with me duvets and me pillows any hour of the night. And they came worried about me. Have you been thrown out? Are you sleeping in the car? I was like, no, just doing voiceovers and podcasts from the car, as you do. Uh, so people adapted, yeah. That was In the Wings. You heard the voices of writer Ronan Brady, director Daniel Reardon, and actors Catherine Walsh, Norma Shahan, and Catherine Walker, talking about working on The Silent Passenger, Ronan Brady's play chronicling the hasty departure of Sigmund Freud, his wife Martha, and their daughter Anna from Vienna in 1938. The producer of In the Wings is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.